an interest in your prayers and pray the Lord will bless us for a few minutes this morning and that uh, the Lord will be honored and glorified. So over the last uh, couple of months since we started meeting again, we've, we've looked at some of the verses and scriptures that, um, that try to help us deal with challenges and adversity in our lives and even how that we are to have the, the proper mindset when uh, tragedy comes our way or surrounds us. We've also looked at verses that uh, have to do with, with heaven and uh, what we've got to look forward to and how that heaven is, is so far better than what we experience here. Looked at verses that try to address what kind of attitude that we're to have uh, when uh, things around us look pretty discouraging and pretty depressing. We've looked at verses that try to help us uh, realize where our strength comes from when we get disheartened along the way. And although there's um, hopefully a benefit in all of those areas, one area that we've not touched on in a while that I love and it just blesses my soul is the basic fundamental doctrine of the church. And that can be categorized as salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. Jude, verse 4, tells us that we are to earnestly, that means diligently. I think this charge is to ministers. When I read the Bible, I realize that I'm recharged over and over again. But this is not only for ministers, but this is for all of us. This is especially for ministers. But it says that we are to earnestly, that means diligently, contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So I pray the Lord would bless us to be able to do just that. I remember my first opportunity, I was 15 years old, to converse with a young couple in the church that I was visiting, the Primitive Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas. I'd grown up in another order and knew full well what pretty well, as much as you can as a 15-year-old, I knew what they believed. And I had attempted to follow the steps in order to secure my salvation. I was taught that you need to first make a profession in Christ, then you need to follow in gospel baptism, and you need to recite some things, and then you can secure your home in heaven. And so I, I, I grew up thinking that's probably the right way. Since then, I've heard a whole lot of ways that you secure your home in heaven. Just recently heard a minister on the radio that uh, said that if you don't have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you better get it written in there. And I got to thinking. I wondered how that would be possible because John said that through the vision that God had given him about the Lamb's Book of Life, when he looked ahead and saw the Lamb's Book of Life, he said it's sealed with seals. And he said no man that he knows is able to loosen the seals thereof. Therefore, you can't add any names to it and you can't take any names out of the Lamb's Book of Life. That was written and sealed. And it was written from before the foundation of the world. So there's not any way that we could... Uh, take a book that's sealed by God and add any names to it or take any names out of it. So I'm not sure how we would get our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Through the years, I've heard a variety of ways that one can become saved. Uh, depending on where you go, you may hear or what you listen to on the radio or the internet or the television. Maybe there's only one thing you need to do. That is accept the Lord. That you've got to accept Him. The problem is that He needs to accept us first before we accept Him. And when we accept Him, the good news is He's already accepted us. He accepted us before we accepted Him. He loved us before we loved Him. And then others will go through a variety of exercises that you need to perform in order to uh, 
uh, get your name secured in heaven and to live with the Lord someday. And there's even some uh, steps that require finances to be attached to it. That if there's somebody that uh, maybe has passed away that their soul is teetering on whether it's going to go to heaven or hell, that if you can donate a large enough check, uh, you may be able to get it to tip the scale and maybe uh, you'll be able to get that soul on into heaven. I've heard other folks say that uh, when someone passes away that if you can get folks together and have a prayer service that maybe you can pray for that individual and get them to heaven. And then I've heard other folks say, well, I live a good life. Well, uh, Psalm 53 tells us uh, when the Lord looked down, he said he looked down and he looked upon all the earth and he looked down through all the ages of time. And he said that what he found is that there's none good, no, not one. That there's not any that's seeking God. There's not any that's following God. So it takes something more than what we're able to give in a, in, with our best efforts. I've heard some folks say, well, my good works outweigh my bad works. And I think they probably just don't have a clear understanding because uh, we're taught that uh, even Isaiah says that all of our thoughts are evil continually. So we don't really have very many good thoughts aside from God. And if we, if we analyze our own self, we realize just how far depraved that we are. So we can't depend upon our good works to save us. We can't depend upon our actions to save us. We can't depend upon our choices to save us. Because if we depend upon that, we're definitely doomed. Well, does it matter what we believe? Does it matter? Uh, in John chapter 4, Jesus Christ confronts the woman at the well. He goes to the city of Samaria and, and he confronts the woman that's at Jacob's well. And I'm just going to paraphrase down through this, but we'll find out if it really matters what we believe, if, if it makes any difference. To this little lady, uh, Jesus Christ comes to her and he asked her in, in John chapter 4 for a drink of water. And she said, she, said that, she said, I'm a Samaritan and the Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. <clears throat> now, she didn't really understand what he was saying right there. And she says, the, the Jews don't have anything to deal with the Samaritans. And she didn't get it. And then uh, he presents it again. And he says, whosoever drink of, of this water shall never thirsteth again. And so she still wasn't really getting what he was saying right there. Because she thought, well, that sounds pretty good. I, I won't ever be thirsty again. I don't ever have to come to the well again. Uh, if you've ever been thirsty, it's wonderful to get a cold drink of water. My, my first paying job was uh, when I was 10 years old and uh, it was a learning experience for me but it was hoeing cotton out in West Texas and it was just about as warm as it's been here, maybe warmer and uh, probably today it would be considered child abuse but uh, I don't know how it was that my folks got by with it but this fellow would come by at 6 o'clock in the morning and a bunch of us would pile in the back of a pickup and then we would go out to a farm. I don't even think, I think this was before seat belts at the time. But we'd ride in the back of the pickup and we'd get out to the farm and those rows were at least a half mile long. You couldn't even see the other end of the row. But the thing that I do remember is that we would get so, so thirsty. And the greatest delight was when we got to the other end of the row and we were able to get a cold glass of water and it would just quench our thirst. If you've ever been thirsty, really wanting something to drink, that's what she's saying. She says, you know what? I'll never thirst again if you give me of that water. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. He goes on down and he explains to her. He says, this, uh, this water that I'm going to give you, and he elaborates in verse 14. He says, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him 
shall be, and this begins to describe it right here, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. If you're a child of God, you have that living water on the inside. And you didn't do anything to get it. The Lord gave it to you. It's not something you go and obtain. It's not something you earn. But it is a free gift from God. It's the manifestation of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Now, we may get weary along the way. We may get cast down. But we're not destroyed. And the reason that we're not is we have that living water on the inside, that Holy Spirit that revives us. And then he comes down, and, and, I, and this is the thrust that I want to get to here in just a second. He comes down and he says, uh, verse 21, Woman, believe me that he, first of all, he tells her in verse 16, this just goes to, just as a little uh, uh, tidbit right here he, he, he sort of tells her he says go and call thy husband to come and, and meet with us here and she says well I don't have a husband and he answers her so this goes to show that God knows everything because he answered her and he said you're right you don't have a husband says, the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. And he said, but you've had five husbands. And she said, oh my goodness, I perceive that you're a prophet. He manifests himself to her that he's the son of God here in just a minute through the rest of the chapter. But here's what he says to her. He says, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, ye, and then this is what he says right here. Verse 22. And this describes a lot of folks. There's a lot of folks that have some desire to worship. But they don't know what they're worshiping. I oftentimes, when I'm driving by different religious denominations I'll read the sign on the uh, on the board because they'll usually have a message and in many areas that I drive by and I read the sign and I look at the message I think if they knew what the Bible said they wouldn't put that message on there because there's some messages that go completely contrary to what God's word has to say And so this is how it describes them. He says to this woman, he says, you worship, you know not what. Well, let me ask you, do you know what you worship? Do you know who you worship? Who is it that you worship? What do you worship? He says to this woman, you worship, you know not what. And so let's see if it makes any difference. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And then Christ, and, and, and you can look this up in your Bible in chapter 4 of John. It's in red print in mine. He says, but the hour cometh, and so that we don't have to wonder if it's a time in the future. He says, the hour cometh, and now is. So that just simply means that right now is the time to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. He doesn't say the hour is coming and it's, it's down the road. My grandmother used to use this phrase, it's high time. That just meant it's right now. It's, I don't know if that means that up here in Maryland, but in Texas it meant if it's high time, you, it means you better be doing it immediately and right here Jesus Christ is saying he says 
the hour cometh, and he says, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says there's two requirements for worship. That we worship the Father, number one, in spirit. Now we're totally dependent completely upon the Lord to bless us with his Holy Spirit to worship. We're completely dependent upon that. But he also says there's a twofold requirement right here. He says we're to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I think this is important to emphasize right here. He says we're to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he says in verse 23, and he says, For the Father seeketh such to worship him. So he's seeking us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he says it a second time. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when I was 15 years old, I was visiting the Primitive Baptist Church. And I will say that the doctrine found me. I didn't find it. It found me. And so I was visiting because I'd grown up going there occasionally with my grandparents. And I started going on a regular basis. And the first place that I went when I got my hardship license was to church. And I enjoyed the fellowship. It was sweet. I enjoyed the singing. It blessed my soul. There was something that filled the void that I had in my life at that time. And I can remember after three months... A young couple, I say young, they were in their mid-twenties, invited me over to their house for lunch on Sunday. And I just asked them. I said, and maybe I'd heard it preached, but it didn't resonate with me. I said, what is the difference in the primitive Baptist? I'd grown up in a free will uh, Baptist church and understood that doctrine. But I said, what's the difference? And I remember they took a piece of paper out and they said, it's interesting that you asked that question. We just recently heard a sermon about that. And they went through step by step. Well, I have to tell you, I loved the young couple, but I did not immediately embrace what they told me. Because I had been taught differently. And I thought... The first thing I thought when I heard them say that, I thought, I'm sure nobody else in that church knows these people believe this. Come to find out the whole church believed it. I was the only one that didn't. And I was taken away from that. And I did not readily embrace it. I didn't. And it took a while. It took studying God's word. I wanted to know that it was the right way. Now, my pastor told me one time, he said the best way to recognize a counterfeit is not to study the counterfeit, but to study, study the genuine document that's there. For example, if you're looking at currency, the best way to recognize... I, you ever go to the store and... and uh, Especially if you give them a $50 bill or $100 bill, they'll look at it and they'll look at you and they'll look at the, 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 the $100 bill and then they'll take a, a yellow marker and wipe across it. And I thought, I wonder if they really know what they're doing. I mean, I wonder, have, have you ever had anybody say that that's a counterfeit? And I just wonder if they really know how to recognize it. But the best way to recognize it is to study what's accurate. And so when the Lord began to open my eyes, I got so excited. And it's been the greatest blessing and joy to me the last 40 some odd years of my life. He says, God is a spirit and they that worship him a second time must worship him in spirit and in truth. So one of the greatest 
one of the greatest marks that is an identifying mark of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many, but one of them is how it is that God saves his people. I mean, that's pretty important, wouldn't you think? It ought to be something that's important for every one of us, how God saves his people. We can hear a variety of ways of how God saves his people, but I want to know the right way. And, and I realize, and, and the, the, the burden is heavy in this respect, I realize that I'm accountable to God. If I tell you the wrong way, or if I point you in the wrong direction, I'm accountable to the church, and I'm accountable to the Lord. And I tell you, that puts the fear in me. If I mislead you, I'm accountable to the Lord on that. So I want it to be as right as it possibly can. This is what brought me peace. And this is the conviction that I've had. And I hope it'll be a blessing to you. I see all these young folks. And I'm telling you, if you see this early in life, and you embrace it, and you're convicted by it, it will make a difference the rest of your life. It'll make a difference on how you see God. It'll make a difference on how you see yourself. It'll make a difference on how you see others once you understand how God saves His people. Let's start with Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll see if we can figure out how God saves His people. We've looked at all the areas that we see that we might, that lead us to failure. If anything points to ourself, it leads us to discouragement and failure. If we are serious to acknowledge our own shortcomings. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus. Now even Paul mentions right here, and he starts out and he says, first of all, I'm a saint, and I'm a saint because of the will of God. So that begins to give us a little bit of insight right here that it was God's will that Paul be a saint. In fact, if you go back and look at the life of Paul when he was referred to as Saul, he was running away from God. If you go back and look at Saul, he not only was, um, um, he, he was, he was diligent to oppose Christians and would actually apprehend Christians, would place them in jail, and he was not only uh, complacent about Christianity, he abhorred Christianity. And so Paul acknowledged that if I'm serving the Lord, if I'm pursuing the Lord, then first of all, it's by His will that I did. And I want to tell you that if you're serving God, if you're pursuing God, if you're loving God, it's because of His will that you're doing it. And then he comes down and he enlightens us a little bit more. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful Christ Jesus, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he starts out and he just begins in this letter to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian brethren, he begins to proclaim this wonderful way of salvation. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will never go wrong in any aspect of salvation if you chase it all the way back to Christ or to the Lord. Every aspect and accomplishment of salvation, there is a direct link all the way to Christ. If it doesn't make it back to Christ, there's something missing right here. He says, Grace be unto you and from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Through Christ, 
you have everything you need. Through Christ, you have all the spiritual blessings that come from God that are restored up in heaven. And it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our all in all. And then he comes down. He says, first of all, he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. First of all, we have all the spiritual blessings that we need here in this life. And they're through Christ. Secondly, all the spiritual blessings that we need to take us to glory are in Christ. All the spiritual blessings that we need to keep us from falling are in Christ. It's all in Christ. And then he begins to break it down just a little bit more in detail right here. He first of all starts out and he says, you're in a real good place. You're in a real good position. You're in a safe place because you're in Christ. Now look at what he says. According as he hath chosen us. Now this right here in Romans chapter 9 totally takes away the concept that we choose God. Look at what he says right here. According as he hath chosen us in him. Okay, who did the choosing? God did the choosing. When did he choose? He says, according as he hath chosen us in him. And he says, before the foundation of the world. Let's grab a couple of verses out of Romans chapter 9 that, that enlighten us just a little bit more on this. Uh, I know Romans is here in my Bible. Uh, just getting to it right here. Romans chapter 9. Okay, while we're looking at the choice right here. Because this is very important. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay, he's doing the choosing. And he did it from before the foundation of the world. So number one, this totally uh, eliminates the idea that we have any ability to choose him because he chose us. And number two, it also eliminates the idea that our good works will help us get chosen. Some folks have the concept, I've heard the concept proclaimed, that God foreknows everything and God does foreknow everything. And that God based his choice on us because he looked down through time and saw who would or would not accept him. Or he looked down through time and he saw who would live a good life and their good works would outweigh the bad works. And therefore they would secure their home in heaven. And so they define foreknowledge as God looking down through time and making his decision based on the actions of the individual. Let's go to Romans chapter 9 and let's see if we can clear that one up right quick. Romans, I love this verse. I, I, I didn't at first, but I, I didn't when I didn't understand it. But when I began to understand it, it is wonderful. It just, it just encourages me so much. For, and I guess it depends on which side of the fence you're on right here. If you're in Jacob's camp or Esau's camp. I hope I'm in Jacob's camp. I hope I am. But let's look what he says. All right. He's talking about two children right here. Two children. Children being not yet born. Neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works but of him that calleth. Brother David Piles helped when I began to study about the doctrines of grace. He went through this with me at 15 years old and explained it. I still didn't understand it. But it's been a blessing to me now for 40 some odd years. He says, according to the purpose, neither done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. He's pointing to election. That's God calling, God choosing. And he says, it's not of works, but it's of him that calleth. And he said, it was said unto her that the elder shall serve the younger. And then this is the verse right here. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. 
Brother Phil, my pastor George Johnson preached this here at Mount Carmel and afterwards your dad went up to Brother George and he said, sounds to me like Esau didn't get a fair deal out of this. And Brother George began to talk to him about it and he began to see it and he began to rejoice in it. And he saw that how that we all are like Esau. We don't deserve to be loved. But that God, did, God didn't owe it to Jacob to love him. But when Brother Bud saw that Jacob wasn't any more deserving of being loved than Esau was because his works were just as bad off, his thoughts just as bad and left to ourselves, we'd all be just like Esau or worse than Esau. And he saw that if it was left up to us, we'd have no hope. But God, through his mercy, looked down and had mercy upon Esau. And he said right here, he said, he said, Jacob, have I loved, but Esau, have I hated? Now, this is the correct response that, that folks would have. It's the same response that Brother Bud mentioned right here. Is there unrighteousness with God? That sounds to me like that God's unfair. It sounds to me like that Esau got the short end of the deal. That's the very proper response that someone would have when they hear this analogy right here. He says, is it unfair? Is God unfair? And then he goes down, and I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul describes this right here. He says, is there unrighteousness with God? He doesn't just present this question right here, but he answers it as well. I have to tell you that I'm like Brother Bud. The first time I heard it, I thought to myself, this is unfair. Because I thought that God gives everybody a chance. I thought we all had a chance to get to heaven. Well, I'll tell you what. I don't believe in chance. I mean, as far as getting to heaven, it's not based on chance. God has prepared it, and he is preparing a home in heaven, and you're not going to get there by chance, and he's not going to be surprised at who's there and who's not there. He already knows who's going to be there. But let's look at this right here. And then he says, God forbid, God's not unrighteous. If we realize it, if we realize that we're all depraved, then it's only by his grace and his mercy that any of us will be there. Then we just bow down as Brother Bud did and praised God that we might be included in that number that he had mercy upon Jacob. And then he says, oh, by the way, he said, just as a reminder right here, it's not based on chance. It's based on the sovereign God. And he says, then he goes down to say, who are we that we are to question a sovereign God? Look what he says. For he saith to Moses, he's describing himself right here, I will have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion upon whom I'll have compassion. It is not of him that willeth. It's not of him that runneth. But it's of God that showeth mercy. And he goes on down to say that he's, he's in great detail. He says, Hath not the potter power of the clay to make the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And he comes down in verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath before prepared unto glory. He, he basically comes down when... Paul presents the question, is there unrighteousness with God? And he says, goodness, no. God forbid, there's no unrighteousness with God. God has mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And he has compassion upon whom he will have compassion. So, back to Ephesians chapter 1. According as he hath chosen us. When did he choose us? He chose us from before the foundation of the world. He didn't choose us based on our actions. He didn't choose us based upon our works. He says in verse 5, having predestinated. Now, what does that mean? What is predestinated? I remember there was a time I did not realize this word was in the Bible. It's actually in there at least two times. It's in Ephesians, it's in Romans. Having predestinated us. 
What does that mean? Does that mean when you have a bad thought, he predestinated that bad thought? No. Does that mean when you answer uh, unkindly to your parents that God was the author of that and that he planned that and you couldn't help but do that? No, that's not what it means. What does it mean? What does predestinate mean? Well, it helps us a little bit to know what destinate means. It means where we're going to end up, where we're going. What is our destination? Where is our destination? Some folks believe that our destination is the grave. That's, that's it. When we pass from this life and we're buried, that's the end of it. Some folks believe that our destination is sort of a, a holding area between heaven and hell. That that's our destination. But what the scriptures teach is that the destination, the final destination... I mean, I'm a great fan of GPS. I mean, I, I use it uh, all the time. And what I put in there is the destination of where I want to end up. Now, when I went down to Virginia, you get in those hills, and a lot of times that GPS drops, and it just kind of leaves you, and you come to a Y in the road, and you just don't know what to do. But I like having that GPS that helps me to get to the destination. All right, let's see what it is that helps us get to the destination that we're wanting to get to. Predestinate means that he has predetermined where you're going to end up. He's predetermined where you're going to end up. Now, if he has predetermined where you're going to end up, do you think that he would do anything less than secure you getting there? It doesn't say that he predetermined where he hoped we would end up, but he predetermines where we're going to end up. He's predetermining our destination. Now let's look at this, and I, mean, I hope it's a blessing to you. It has been to me for all these years, and these young folks, I hope that it will be a blessing to you. Having predetermined our destination, he says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, he tells us who it is that predestinates us. He says, to himself, and then he tells us why he predestinated us. He says, he predetermined our destination to himself, and then he tells us why he did it. You ever ask your parents, Bray, Tristan, uh, probably Danny, ever ask the word why? I mean, when you were growing up, did you ever ask why? Uh, my folks were not real big fans of trying to explain why. And God tells us why he did it. He says, having predetermined our destination unto us, the adoption of children, by Jesus Christ, he predestinated us to himself, and he says he did it according to the good pleasure of his will. He did it because he chose to do it. You ever had uh, your parents say, well, the reason that I'm telling you this is because simply I'm the parent. Well, God is simply saying right here, I'm God. And I do my will. And I do it how I want to. And he says, who are you as the clay to ask the potter, why did you do such? He says, I do it because I'm God. And Jesus Christ says, I have chosen you from before the foundation of the world. I have predetermined your destiny. And he said, I did it according to my will. So your salvation and your eternal home is according to His will. And he says, to the praise and the glory of His grace, wherein He hath... Now, this one, hold on to. This is really, really good. 
If anybody comes to you and tells you that you need to accept Christ, use this verse right here because this explains it. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. I skipped it here, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the blood. He accepts us. He accepts us before we are even, even have the ability to know that we need to accept him. Yes, you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you should follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have a belief in Jesus Christ, it's because he accepted you and he did it in Christ. And he chose you from before the foundation of the world. Oh, it gets, it gets really, really good on down through Ephesians. But I want to I grab a couple of verses out of Romans right here. Real, real good stuff. Great stuff. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is so good. Let's, let's start with verse 28. I love this. A lot of folks love to, love to debate it and, and, and divide on it and find lines. I, here's, here's how I understand this. I'm not saying that I'm the only one right. This is just how God has given me light on it, I believe, how I understand it right here. And we know that all things, I don't even have to read this verse. I could go down to verse 29, but I'm just going to drop some tidbits right here. Verse 29 would be plenty adequate to start with, but let's start with verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Okay? I have dear friends that say that all things work together and stop right there for everybody. But here he tells us who he's talking about. He tells us right here that there's a group of people that there's something working together for their good. And then he tells us who the group of people are. He says the group of people are those that love God. So look at this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I tend to believe, like Elder Compton taught, that it is specific. It, it, no, I, say, I don't want to say specifically. I, it wouldn't be wrong to say specific, but I'll say primarily. That it is primarily the five things that follow right below it right there. But I don't mind taking it a little bit farther than that. Now, let me just toss this out. I had something uh, that happened recently that was, that was bad. And I could not see any good in it. I couldn't. It, it, it was difficult. It was hard. It wasn't pleasant. It was a difficult experience. And I could not see anything good come out of it. Some good things that came out of it was that God gave me the strength to get through it. Another good thing that came out of it is a verse that came to mind out of Romans chapter 8 that reminded me that even though there are others that seem or may appear like they're against you, that God is for me. That was good. That helped me a whole lot. Another good thing that came out of it is that God opened some doors for me to meet folks that I would not have met if it hadn't have been for this experience. So I'm not going to say dogmatically that things that happen, that the end result can't be good. I've mentioned before that I can take a really good thing and I can't even keep it good. I end up making it bad. But God can take a bad thing. I don't believe he does it all the time, but I believe he does it some of the time. He has in my life and make it good. But here's what he says. First of all, it's to those that love God. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And then this is what he begins to describe right here. And he, he emphasizes the five points. For whom He did foreknow. He says, here's some things. I don't think anybody would debate that these five things are working together for your good. I mean... You ought to go home excited. If you love the Lord, if you believe in the Lord, that here's at least five things that are working together for your good. Now, I believe there's a whole lot of other things that are working together for our good. 
I, 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 I don't believe it gives me a license to sin. I don't, I have not figured out how that that works together for good. But God can take a bad situation and bring something good out of it. And only God can do that. We make things worse. But here's what he says. For whom he did foreknow. Alright, that gives us a little bit of insight. Predestination is not talking about events. Predestination is talking about people. About people. For whom? Okay, look what he says. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So he started right here, and here's specifically five things that he mentions right here. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. So it's important for us to realize that the very same number that he starts with right here is the same number that he ends up with. When you go through this exercise of the five different steps. He says for whom, so he tells us that it's people. And he says it's predetermining our destination that he's talking about. And he says for whom he did foreknow, God foreknew you. Just like he mentioned to the lady that was living with a man that wasn't her husband. If, if, if that's the scenario, you may say, well, my parents don't know. My friends don't know. My church family doesn't know. But the, the sad reality is that God knows. God knows. He approached the woman and he said, you're living with a man. And you're right. He's not your husband. And you've already had five husbands, he tells her. But God knows. Well, here he says, God foreknows everything. Not any surprises. You're not going to surprise God. God knows everything. But he's talking primarily about those that are chosen in Christ that are going to end up in glory. Now, I hope this will be encouraging to you. For whom, talking about a specific group of people, did he foreknow those he did predestinate? Those that he foreknew from before the foundation of the world, he predetermined their destination. Where they're going to end up. To be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then he goes down. And he says here's some great benefits to those that he foreknew. Here's some great benefits for the child of God. For the elect. And here they are. He says moreover whom. Those that were foreknown. Those that were called. He says moreover whom he did predestinate. Them he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. Now, a lot of folks will tell you that there's a, uh, a blanket call that goes out. The gospel call that you should uh, hear the message and you need to accept the message in order to secure your home in heaven. But he tells us right here that, that he actually did all the steps. That he did every bit of it. That yes, we ought to believe in Christ and that's our only hope. And in Christ is our all in all. But we believe in him and the belief is an evidence of what he's planted within our heart. The belief is not the cause or the action that secures our home in heaven. But the belief is an evidence that you have spiritual life. Now let's, let's just get through this. I know we've got about eight minutes and, and I just want to really hit this because it's, it's, it's really good. He says... Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. And he says, those, that same group he called, them he also justified. So just in case somebody didn't accept Christ, do you think that they weren't justified? He's the one that foreknew them. He's the one that predestinated them. He's the one that called them. And he says, by the way, I've even justified them as well. So we're not justified based upon our reaction to the call. We're justified based upon one thing, and that is being in that covenant of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ representing us upon the, Calvary, upon the cross of Calvary and that by his blood we are justified and made alive by the blood of Jesus Christ. That justifies us. And then he comes, I mean, that to me that's, down in the south, I'm sure you've never heard of this up here. Even among old Baptists sometimes. 
when they had a really good association or three-day meeting or fifth Sunday meeting, they'd say, folks got so happy they were on shouting ground. And I've even, I'm so old, I've even heard some folks shouting during the song service or the preaching. I'm sure you've never witnessed that, but back in my past life, that was, um, I don't hear that anymore. And I'm not asking you to do it, but, uh, but I tell you what, it ought to cause you at least inwardly to rejoice. It ought to put us on shouting ground to know that Jesus Christ justified every one of us. Every one of the thoughts, Bray, every single thought that you have that's contrary to God, and every thought that I have contrary to God, every word that I say, every action that I do, contrary to God, He's paid the price and He's justified it by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has. Something I can't pay. All right, look what he says. He says, we're justified in Christ. He says, oh, by the way, and I, I tell you, this gives me a great deal of encouragement when we pass from this life. One thing I've realized is that nothing stays the same. It's constant change. I mean, look at our church family that, that uh, so many of them through the years are now with the Lord. Things change. Families that we grow to love and appreciate, like the Huffmans, they move south. Things change, but the Lord uses them there. I'm still hoping they'll move back someday. But things change. But here's one thing that doesn't change. You're not going to fall from grace. If you're chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, you're secure in Christ. You're not going to make a mistake, stump your toe, say a bad word, think a wrong thought, and lose your salvation. You're not going to have your salvation one minute and lose it the next. Because the same number of people that he foreknew, that he predestinated, that he called, that same number he justified, and every one of them are going to be glorified in heaven. Now that's some good news. That we're not going to lose our salvation. But that because of the finished work of Christ, he's going to see it all the way through. He's going to see you all the way through to heaven. We'll go back and sum it up in, in Romans. I, I encourage you to read Romans chapter, I mean Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. Really, really good. It's great stuff. It's, he goes on down and he says, by the way, it's through, I'm just going to hit it real quick. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. Now he purposes a lot of things for us to do. And some things we do, and some things we don't. But our salvation was purposed in him. He didn't leave it up to us. He didn't leave it up to chance. It's purposed in him. And he says, by the way, I've not only done this, I've not only secured it, I've not only done it because it was my will to do it, and it was for my good pleasure, but he said, I'm going to give you a little side benefit, a great benefit. I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to tell you that you are heirs of my grace. Now, wouldn't it be one thing for him to save us and not tell us about it? I mean, don't you get a lot of joy? Uh, in knowing that we're going to end up in heaven. Please go through and read Ephesians chapter 2. I'll hit a few verses right here. And you hath he quickened. That means he made you alive spiritually. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're dead, you do not have the ability to do anything. This really helped me understand the doctrines of grace. When I realized that dead doesn't just mean that you're sick. Doesn't mean you're, you're ill. It means you're dead spiritually. And he says right here that we were dead in trespasses and sins. He says we walked in our, in our way of walk. It was after the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, we were following the temptations and the lust of the flesh and following Satan. 
He says, we even had our conversations in times past in the lust of the flesh. Paul was relating his own experience. He says, not only were we having conversations about the lust of the flesh, he said, we were fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And he said, we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But he says, while we were in that, that God, but God. Do you know what? A whole lot of things change when you go through the scriptures and you look at all the places that it just simply says, but God. A lot of things right now that seem out of control, that seem going in the wrong direction at a fast pace. And granted that it probably would, but God. God is in control. God is over all the things that's going on around us. God is not surprised at what's going on around us. But he says, we were going in the wrong direction, and we were going there fast, and we were getting, as Brother Pope would say, worser and worser. I mean, we were pretty bad off and just getting much more worse. But God. And he says right here, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, we were sinners in sin, he hath quickened us or made us alive. And then he says this several times. This is really, really important right here. If you don't get anything else, just get this right here. He says, for by grace are you saved. He just puts it in parentheses here. Paul uh, emphasizes it. And then he comes down and we'll, we'll just hit the last three verses. He, or, uh, verse 8. He says it again. For by grace are you saved through faith. Now someone might get to thinking, I must have faith in order to have salvation. Here he clarifies that. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And he says, by the way, and that's not of yourselves. So it just clears it up in case we begin to think that we've got to go out and get some faith in order to get salvation. He says, it's not even of yourselves. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. He says, it is a gift of God. A gift is not something you deserve and it's not something you earn. It's freely given by God. And he says, by the way, I'm going to remind you again. It's not of works, good works, bad works, any kind of works. It's not of works of righteousness. And he says, here's why it's not. He says, it's not based on your works your acceptance, your works of righteousness. Did you know that if you had to do something, if you had to accept Christ, that's a work? I mean, would you agree? I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but to me it looks like that's a work. And he said, here's the reason that it's not based on works. He said, it's not based on works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. Now, I have dear friends that believe that they're helping populate heaven. And they can tell you how many that they've added to the list that's going to heaven. And here he says, the reason I didn't design it that way is because I don't want any room for any man to boast in it. Why didn't he want us to boast in it? Because he's the one that gets all the glory. Now look what he says. He says, now remember, we're his workmanship. Remember, we're created in Christ Jesus. And he says... I said, you're not saved by works, but you're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Does it matter how I live? I mean, it, it matters to our parents how we live. It matters to our friends how we live. It matters to God how we live. He says we're created, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He says we're created to walk in good works. He says, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in. So God has chosen us. He's called us. He's saved us. He's paid the price in full. He tells us that we should perform good works. But it's not to get saved. It's because we are saved that we're to live righteously. I love the message of God's sovereign grace. It delivered me 45 years ago from so many uh, ways that I thought that I was helping the Lord in, in saving myself. And I have 
delighted to be able to share through the years. At least the Lord has given me a peace in my life. That if I have a home in heaven, that it's not based upon what I've done, but it's based upon what he's done. Now, to me, when he says that we're to worship in spirit and in truth, if God's given us that light and that understanding, we ought to rejoice in it. And we ought to worship in that light. May God bless you.